I appreciate you uh, reading those passage for us, but also praying for me. Um, I love the way that you're just always so authentic and passionate and uh, really, really appreciate and admire that. Um, so again, yeah, I have two first names, Keith Terry. And uh, for those of you who don't know us, uh, my wife and I have been attending here for the last eight or nine months. And we've been enjoying getting to know some of you Sunday mornings and uh, some of you in our small group that we've joined. And uh, we'd love to get to know more of you. So if you get a chance, we try, often try to sit in different spots. So we try to get to know different people. But uh, we'd love it if you would come and introduce yourselves to us. Invite us out for coffee. And uh, we'd love to do that and get to know you even more. I think we're probably all aware of the intense power struggle that's going on down in the United States. But the depths of the craziness and the intensity of that power struggle really struck me this week when I read the following. Having dug to a depth of 10 feet last year in, the, in New York, scientists found traces of copper wire dating back 100 years. They concluded that their ancestors already had a telephone network more than 100 years ago. Not to be outdone by the New Yorkers, in the weeks that followed in California, an archaeologist dug to a depth of 20 feet, and shortly after the headlines in the LA Times read, California archaeologists have found traces of 200-year-old copper wire and have concluded that their ancestors already had an advanced, high-tech communications network 100 years earlier than the New Yorkers. One week later, a local newspaper in Texas reported the following. After digging as deep as 30 feet in his 2,000-acre farmland in Montgomery County, Texas, Bubba Rathbone, a self-taught archaeologist, reported that he found absolutely nothing. <laughs> and Bob has therefore concluded that 300 years ago, Texans had already gone wireless. <laughs> when uh, Todd came to visit Heather and myself a few months ago, he dug up some of our buried secrets. And uh, one of the things he learned is that I graduated from seminary, and before moving out here to Alberta from uh, Manitoba, I spent 25 years as a missionary with Youth Unlimited same organization that Gerald and Katie are with here in central Alberta. And if I can give a shameless plug from someone who has seen the inner workings of Youth Unlimited, let me assure you that it's a great organization. And we had great 25 years there. And I really admire what Gerald and Katie are doing through the ministry here in central Alberta. And I believe they're worthy of your support. So on their behalf and the teenagers throughout central Alberta, I just want to express my appreciation for the way this church is partnering with them. And anyways, because Todd unearthed my secret past identity, I believe this is what led to this invitation to speak to you this morning. So I'm going to try to figure out whether, oh, it's already there, good, right on. So I titled today's message, Becoming Powerful, Waking Up to Who You Are 
and who you're meant to be. And we're going to consider five things. First one is one letter. The second is one idea. Then one word. And then one theme. And then we're going to talk about the one and only you. So it was about uh, six weeks ago, I'd say, when Don, on behalf of the elders, asked me to speak on the book of Ephesians. I must admit, at first I was just totally intimidated and overwhelmed by the request. How do you cover a whole book of the Bible in one sermon? Come on, that's crazy. Is that even a thing? I've never heard it done before. I guess today I'm going to hear it for the first time. But to, to be fair... Don did give me an out. He says, well, if that's too much material, you could just preach on the first three chapters of Ephesians. Well, even that seemed like a Herculean task. And I wasn't comforted when I heard and found out that Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous UK preacher, it took him 232 sermons to get through the book of Ephesians. But yeah, I can do it in one sermon. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. One sermon in all the book of Ephesians seemed crazy to me, but 232? That just seems like overkill. But anyways, my initial reaction to Don was just to graciously decline. I didn't say anything. I just, just seemed too daunting. Nevertheless, I decided to ponder the request. And I decided what I would do is I would just read through the book of Ephesians in one sitting, a few days in a row, a number of days in a row. And to my surprise, it only took about 15 minutes to read through the whole book. And suddenly, Don's request to summarize the message of Ephesians didn't seem so overwhelming. So here's the first thing you should know about Ephesians. It's not really a book. It's better to describe it as a letter. No, not a letter of the alphabet but more like a letter you would receive in the mail from someone you know. So imagine getting a handwritten letter in the mail. That doesn't happen that often anymore. But now imagine if this letter was coming from a friend of yours, and that friend's in prison. That would probably make that letter just a little bit more compelling to read. Don't you think? I want to draw your attention to three distinctive features of this letter. The first one is, is its type. It was a circular letter. Paul's intention was for this letter to be circulated from one church to another. And that's why there's no personal greeting in this letter. There's no one specific problem he's trying to address. In fact, in the introduction where he addresses the readers, it's likely that there would have been a blank space. And the person reading this letter to a gathered group of Christ followers would have filled in that blank spot. They would have read from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the church in Laodicea. In another location, to the church in Smyrna. And in another location, to the church in Pergamum. It just so happens that the copy that has been passed down to us in our Christian Bible is the copy that reads to the church that is in Ephesus. And so I think it would be okay 
right and maybe even proper for us to read this letter in this way to God's people in Pinocchio. It's a message that's applicable to God's people in whatever geographical location they may find themselves. The second thing I want to highlight is its value. This letter has great value because it has the power to fundamentally and permanently change your life. Bible scholars say it's the greatest and most mature of anything Paul wrote. That's an incredible thing to say. Paul wrote a large portion of the New Testament and many of his writings are intense and profound, such as the book of Romans. Nevertheless, many Bible teachers tell us Ephesians beats Romans in its maturity. A second reason why we should study Ephesians is that it summarizes better than any other book in the Bible what it means to be a Christ follower. It's just as deep and profound as Romans, but it summarizes the gospel much more succinctly. The third reason we should pay attention to the message of Ephesians is because it might be, it just, it's probably the most relevant book in the Bible for the, book, for the world we live in today. Think about this. It addresses people living in a context of religious pluralism. It talks about racial reconciliation. It tackles gender roles in marriage. It covers topics of identity, spiritual formation, spiritual warfare, and how to be godly in a sex-saturated world. It's fair to say that Ephesians might be the most relevant book in the Bible for the world we live in today. Third thing I want to highlight is its cultural setting. Right now, archaeologists are digging up, excavating the city of Ephesus. It's not a functioning city currently, and Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. And you can tour this city, apparently, this ancient city, and you can see the parts that have been excavated. And people who have gone there say it's a beautiful city. And apparently they estimate that at its peak, it would have had a population of about 250,000 people at its prime. But if you go there, one thing you'd be able to see and learn is about its religious temple. It was called Artemis. And Artemis is the name of a sexual fertility goddess. And the worship of this sexual goddess permeated every aspect of their life. Coins were imprinted with her image. And it was a sexually provocative image. And they had erotic festivals that celebrated her sexuality. And almost daily, it's believed, men would go to the temple to indulge in sexual pleasure. As a man, your wife bore you children. But it was normal to go to the temple for sexual pleasure. It was an acceptable way of life. You'd come home, have supper, then you'd go to the temple where prostitutes were hanging out, and men would engage in all kinds of sexual activities. It was just an acceptable way of life. Now imagine, with that background in mind, imagine Paul in this letter saying to the men who are Christ followers, in chapter 5, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church with utter single-minded devotion. 
And then Paul says also in this letter, there shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. Paul's message would have been radical. It would have been unimaginable in this sex-saturated culture. How do you live that way in a sex-saturated culture where sexual promiscuity is commonplace? How do we do that in our sex-saturated culture where everywhere we look, in our ads, TV, on the internet, on our smartphones, how do we as Christians live in a sex-saturated world? A second unique thing about Ephesus was that it was a regional center for magical powers. It's a place where you came to worship demons. There was a lot of magic and demonic activity in this city. And this is a perfect segue into describing what I believe is the big overriding idea in the letter of Ephesus. In Ephesus, people lived in awe and fear of the powers of the unseen world. And what's fascinating to me is that Paul doesn't dispute, challenge, or dismiss these powers. You know what Paul does? He says, I'll show you an even greater power. He says it's a power that surpasses every other power. Paul is saying that God just doesn't have great power. He has super, hyper, mega, dynamo power. Paul says there's no greater power. It surpasses all other powers. It's literally the greatest power that exists. All other powers are a distant second or third. The letter of Ephesians is all about power. Power and more power. Here's just a small sampling of some of the ways that Paul writes about power in this letter. Ephesians 1, verse 18 and 19. I pray that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in the one which is to come. I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. God's hyper great power is for us. It's for us. It's in us. It can flow through us. And it's directed towards us. And then in Ephesians 3, 7, it says, according to the working of his power, Ephesians 3.16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Ephesians 3.17, that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints. And then verse 20, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. And there just keeps on and on. There's just this repeating theme. God's power is one of the central ideas throughout Ephesians. And as I read and as I reread this letter, I began to try to formulate for myself one sentence that would capture its overall big idea. 
It's one thing to try to capture the message in 30 minutes. I was going to challenge myself, can I capture it in one sentence? And I went through a lot of different sentences. But here's what I finally came up with. Is that you optimize God's power by living a life of love based upon the wonder of being love. You optimize God's power by living a life of love based upon the wonder of being loved. Unlike many power-hungry people in our world, God isn't greedy or possessive of his power. Rather, the letter to Ephesians makes a point that power-sharing is at the heart of God's design and desire. Unfortunately, the history of mankind shows that most of us cannot be entrusted with power. Dallas Willard, famous Christian writer, he wrote, writes, he says, the primary work of God is finding people to whom he can entrust his power. And the story of most people is being entrusted with power, they bring harm to themselves and to those under their care. I think it's a thought-provoking question. Can God entrust his power to me? In 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, we read, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong, powerful, on behalf of those whose heart is fully his. To whom does God share his power and strength? With those whose heart is fully his. In Ephesians, Paul wants God's power to be optimized in our lives. And he divides his letter into two clear sections. The first section, chapters 1 to 3, is about who you are. And then in chapters 4 to 6, Paul encouraged us to be who we are. Who we are, and then be who we are. First, let's consider who we are. Without much effort, I found over 50 descriptions in Ephesians that tell us who we are in Christ. And I'm just going to show a sampling of them, some of them, in the next three slides. But just know that this isn't an exhaustive list. In the Bible, from the beginning to the end, there are hundreds of other word pictures that seek to establish who we are, who, what our identity is in Christ. The Bible is a book that primarily answers two fundamental questions that mankind has always asked. What is God like? And secondly, who are we? Who is God and who are we? And Ephesians, like any other book in the Bible, seeks to answer these two fundamental questions. And the common denominator in all these identity statements throughout the entire Bible is the idea that we are deeply and powerfully loved. Here are some more. These are some additional ones that Paul invites us to consider as our identity in Christ. But for Paul, you cannot powerfully love if you don't believe in your core that you are deeply and powerfully loved. 
So my question for you is, what word picture would help you to emotionally connect with God's unsurpassing, exceedingly great love for you? What word, word picture would empower you to show up as your best, most loving self? And here's what I want to suggest. And that is that the image that you pick doesn't even need to be an image that's in the Bible. The fact that there are hundreds of word pictures used by multitude of different writers in different locations at different time periods leads me to think that the identity statements of the Bible throughout the Bible are not tended to be viewed as an exhaustive list, but rather they're a springboard to discover a word picture that's uniquely and meaningful to you. One that assists you to connect with God's great love and to drive that connection down deeper into your soul. Consider Paul. He had a word picture for himself that's not in this list that he suggested for his readers. Whenever he put on his preaching hat or his writing hat, he leaned into the identity of being an apostle. This is the identity that he cultivated, projected, and he argued for. Many at first questioned whether he had the right to consider himself an apostle because he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Nevertheless, Paul argued vehemently that this was central to his core identity, and it empowered him to show up the way he did. In Ephesians, Paul also identifies himself as a prisoner of the Lord. He was in a Roman prison, but he did not see himself as a prisoner of the Romans. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, not the Romans. And then this self-image then determined his attitude in prison. It determined what he chose to do while he was in prison. Like, do you really think that the Romans would have given him tools and equipment and pen and paper and encouraged him to write letters to the Christian churches, to this movement that they were trying to quell? Do you think they would have suggested that? No, Paul would have fought for that because he still saw himself as an apostle, he had a job to do. You know, if he's in prison, and, God, and if he's a prisoner of the Lord, obviously God must have a purpose for him to be there. So he tried to figure out what it might be and how he might do it, and he set about to try to do it. He would have had to work extremely hard then, even after all that, to write these iconic, legendary pieces of literature that have stood the test of time that make up the large portion of the best-selling book of all time, the Bible. Most of the New Testament, I don't believe, would have been written if Paul didn't cultivate this deep core conviction about his identity. Imagine if his identity was controlled by his circumstances. Imagine if his mental state was that of a victim. Oh, poor me. I'm unjustly prisoned simply for preaching the gospel. But Paul never saw himself as a prisoner of the Romans. He was a prisoner of the Lord. And so he figured out what might an apostle do, what might a prisoner of the Lord do. And so he figured out how to do apostle-like things even while being confined in a jail. How he saw himself determined how he thought and how he behaved. His circumstances didn't define him. His identity determined his behavior. It determined his attitude. It determined how he showed up 
each and every day. Can I urge you, carefully cultivate your core identity because you are only capable of living up to the internal image you have of yourself. Establish, water, nourish, cultivate a positive image of yourself as one of God's dearly loved children. Up on the screen, I just put up a bunch more word pictures that Paul used in Ephesians to reinforce our identity in Christ. And these are just the ones found in Ephesians. But know this, from the beginning of the Bible to its very end, there are hundreds and hundreds of other word pictures that describe the nuances and the implications of being a dearly loved child of God. It's like the Bible says, just pick one. It doesn't really matter which one you meditate on. They're all rich with meaning and significance. In fact, I think you can even pick an image that isn't even in the Bible. As long as the word image helps you connect with God's great love for you, I think you can, it can be considered as an appropriate way for you to root your identity in God's great love. For me, for example, the last six months, I've been leaning into the image of being a screwed-in light bulb. I know, it's kind of silly. It's kind of a playful word picture, but that's part of its appeal to me. And so I kind of make a game of it during my day, and it's a term that isn't used in the Bible, but for me, it reminds me of this biblical truth that he's the vine, I'm the branch, and my job is to stay connected to him. But I'm not a gardener, so the image of a vine and a branch doesn't particularly resonate with me. So when I get anxious and jittery, and I know that people around me are sensing it, I can remind myself that I don't want to be that annoying, flickering light bulb. And I say to myself, Keith, you're a bit wobbly. Probably a little bit annoying right now. You may want to make sure your light bulb is totally screwed in. And that image of a screwed-in light bulb helps me to reconnect to God's peace and love. To me, it's an image that beckons me to be warm, steady, and exude energized tranquility. It's a reminder that I want to show up radiantly alive. What about you? What word or image might empower you to remain deeply connected to God's love? Then talk to yourself throughout the day. Remind yourself who you are and whose you are. And the purpose of self-talk isn't to deceive yourself. The purpose of self-talk is to direct your mind. It's important to take every thought captive. It's important not to believe every thought that comes into your mind and head. But instead, be aware of them, throw some of them in prison, or in the garbage where they belong, take every thought captive, throw it away, but then talk to yourself. Direct your mind. Steer it in a healthy direction because you're only capable of living up to the core eternal image you have of yourself. Therefore, purposefully and carefully cultivate your core identity. For Paul, in Ephesians, it's critical that you cultivate a powerful identity of who you are in Christ, of being deeply and profoundly loved. To show up powerfully in our, in our relationships, in our world, 
Paul thinks you need to know who you are. You need to root yourself in God's love, and you need to live a life of love. Paul is saying in Ephesians, we need to grow down in order to grow up. Chapters 1 to 3 is growing down into who we are. And who are we? We're his dearly beloved children. In chapters 4 to 6, it's about growing up into who we could become. And who are we designed to be? We're designed to be channels of his love. Several years ago, Heather and I began a habit, began a tradition of um, annually picking one word that will be each of ours word for the year. It's a word that we want to lean into the upcoming year and we want to better understand and it's a word that we want to become it to become a better part, a greater part of our everyday experience. The very first word that I picked when we started this was I picked the word radical. I was inspired by the idea of being a sold out, all out, all in Christ follower. And then 9-11 happened. He could only imagine the things that began to be associated in my mind with the word radical. At that time, it was often used in the media of an extremist, someone who was over the top, excessive, fanatical, violent. But as I studied this word, and I learned it can mean a variety of things depending on its context. If you trace back the origin of the word radical, you would discover that the word radical comes from the Latin word radicalis. And radicalis means from the root. If you look up the word radical in Webster's Dictionary, one of the definitions is arising from, relating to, or proceeding from a root. We get the word radish from the word radicalis. And radish is a big root. In surgical context, in surgical context, performing radical surgery means removing the root of a disease. We get the word eradicate from this word. And eradicate means to pull up from its root. When doctors perform radical surgery to eradicate cancer from your body, it means they're trying to cut out the root of the cancer. In its original use, radical didn't mean extreme, it meant root. In mathematics, the radical number is the root number, and the radical sign is the square root sign, which is the root number of a mathematical equation. In botany, the study of plant life, the radical leaves are the leaves that are closest to the root. To be involved in radical politics is to advocate for fundamental root changes. In grammar, the radical word is the root word. When you strip a word of its prefix and suffix, you're left with the root word or the radical word. In linguistics, the two or three consonants that form a word are called the radical consonants. What about music? In music, the radical note means belonging to the root chord. In every area of life, we can see ways in which the word radical 
doesn't mean excessive, as we tend to think of it today, but it, rather it means from the root. If you studied chemistry, you may have heard of the free radical. The free radical is the smallest root atom that is disconnected. The root atom is called the radical, the free radical. So I asked myself, could being a radical Christian mean to be deeply rooted? Throughout the Bible, there are references to, be, to the theme of being spiritually rooted. Someone be willing just to read that verse from me, Colossians 2, 6. Just read it out loud and give me a little break. Thank you. Someone else. Tackle Ephesians 3. It's a little bit longer. At a pivotal moment in this letter of Ephesians, at its height, Paul expresses his heartfelt passion and purpose for this letter. It's here that we hear his heartbeat, the loudest. It's here that Paul pours out his heart. It's here that Paul confesses, the reason I get down on my knees up before the Father, and for this reason I cry out to God. I so badly want God to accomplish this in your heart and life. He says, I pray that you'll be strengthened with power, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, the height of God's love, to be able to experientially know the love of Christ. For Paul, the strength of your root system determines the fullness of your life. How about this one, Jeremiah 17? Someone please read that out loud for us. Thanks for doing this. So this passage is saying when you have deep roots, you can handle the heat. You can handle a lot of pressure. When you have deep roots, you can handle drought when things dry up in your life. When you have deep roots, it says, your leaves stay green. You're able to stay mentally and emotionally healthy and vibrant. And when you have deep roots, you produce fruit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, self-control. Here's a nice short one for someone. Please. So if you want to guess, go to Edmonton. There's a building under construction and says it's going to be a big skyscraper. If you're curious about how tall that skyscraper is going to be, one way to try to guess is to look at how deep they're digging the foundation. How deep are they driving down the piles? 
In the same way, if you want to reach your full potential in Christ, you need to pay attention to your foundation, to your roots. To grow up, you need to grow down. And one more, please, someone help me out. So when you plant your roots, it says, in God's extravagant love, it gives you vibrancy. It produces rich, delicious fruit, and your leaves don't wither. Alternatively, when people don't find their nourishment in God's love, they turn to other things. It might be to food, to drugs. They might even look to a human relationship. But our emotional, mental, and spiritual wellness can't be farmed out to someone else. And if you try to, it will suck the life out of that relationship. Your emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being is your responsibility. Only you can take responsibility for your inner dialogue and for managing the story you're telling yourself, about yourself, about God, about others, about your present situation, about your past, about your future. How do we do that? I lied. There's one more here. John 15, verse 9. So, it's our job to stand under the waterfall of his powerful, never-ending love. There are things that are helpful to remain in love and there's things that can take us away from staying and standing under the waterfall of his love. So my question for you is, who are the people? What are the activities and places that you either need to add or delete to become more deeply rooted in God's great love? And I suggest that maybe It'd be good to establish some spiritual disciplines that serve you well. Some people journal. Some people take walks in nature. Some people just take regular times of solitude. Some listen to worship music. The key is to figure out what activities, practices, and relationships need to be a part of your life so that every 24 hours you can live in vital union with Jesus Christ, no matter what anyone else around you is doing. When someone makes that commitment and lives it out, they live with God's boldness, with God's power, and God's creativity that comes from abiding in Christ. That's what makes them effective and powerful. They can't be seduced. They live dialed in, surrendered lives. So say to yourself, I will not allow my life to run astray from vital union with God. I will practice the disciplines, the activities. I will arrange my life in such a way that enables me to live in vital union with God every day. And here's the truth about modern life. The pace of life won't slow down. Pressures, responsibilities, and deadlines will increase rather than decrease. Therefore, can I suggest 
You must ruthlessly prune hurry from your life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You know, it only takes six months to grow a mushroom. But it takes 60 years to grow an oak tree. Who do you want to be? A mushroom or an oak tree? In chapter 4 to 6, Paul challenges us now to live a life of love. He tells us in chapter 4 to live a, a life worthy of the calling that we've received. And then in verse 5, he starts... Chapter 5, he starts off that chapter by saying, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. And Paul encourages us to live a life of love in every area of our life. Which brings me to the one and only you. In what area of your life do you need to more powerfully live a life of love? Because the purpose of driving our roots down into God's great love for us isn't just for us to feel warm and fuzzy. It isn't just that we kind of, you know, wrap ourselves up into some kind of uh, spiritual cocoon, self-absorbed cocoon. We drink from the well of God's love so our cup is overflowing so we can enter the world and powerfully and profoundly love, live a life of love. For Paul, love isn't an abstract or nebulous feeling. Love shows up in the nitty-gritty of everyday lives. And Paul gets real specific. He's, I was hoping that, here we go. Here's a summary of what all he gets into in chapters 4 to 6. He says it shows up in every detail of life in our church life, in our personal life, in our sexuality, in our everyday decisions, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our workplaces, and in our minds and the battle with the unseen world. In each of these areas, Paul gets into the nitty-gritty of our high-stake relationships. And it's as if he's saying the best avenue for growing up, for growing into full maturity, is through our high-stake relationships. There's no better avenue. You optimize God's power by learning to love. Our high-stake relationships is God's chosen pathway for growing us up emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And Paul begins by sticking his finger into our church relationships. See if I can find that one. I mixed up the slides here a bit. In Ephesians 4, 2, what does it say? It says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How do we measure whether we're living a life of love in the context of our church relationships. According to Paul, in a church context, love can be measured by our unity. It can be hard in a congregation with hundreds of people to live in unity. Just because we attend the same church doesn't mean there's unity. You can tie the tails of a cat and a dog together 
and hang them over a telephone wire, and you have union, but you don't necessarily have unity. Love in a church context involves the hard work of making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. So are you a peacemaker in this church? Or are you a troublemaker? Do you work hard to maintain the bond of peace? Or do your actions and words tend to stir things up? This church will not be a powerful force that it's intended to be unless we forge a powerful and uncommon level, uncommon level of unity. What does it say? They will know we are Christians by our by our love. And here's the irony. Here's the irony. We need to fight to be unified. Paul reminds us that living a life of love is a spiritual battle. Our battle isn't with each other. Any disunity that might be present in this church isn't primarily due to any kind of insurmountable differences between groups of people. The greatest threat to our unity comes from our common enemy, the devil. And we will only defeat him when we lock arms with each other, look each other in the eye and say, you, you are not my enemy. You're my brother. You're my sister. I'm going to love you. Even when you're annoying. Maybe especially when you're annoying because who knows? Only God knows what you might be going through. Can we bring a little bit more grace, and patience, and humility to our interactions with, it, with one another? Can we? Paul goes on in Ephesians 6. He says, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the enemy's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Four times, four times in this short section, he says, we are told to stand. Stand, 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 stand firm. I think one of the hardest places to stand is in our marriages. And Paul has the nerve to stick his little finger right into this nerve-sensitive area of our life as well. It's easy to fall in love. It's much harder to stand in love. Yet it's precisely what Paul tells us to do. You know what kills love? What kills marriage is not hate. And what kills marriage is not discord, and it's not differences, it's not money. What kills marriages is neglect. It's neglect. You stop doing the loving things that you did to woo the other person. If I knew it was the last time I'd see you fall asleep, I'd tuck you in more tightly and pray your soul to keep. 
If I knew it was the last time I'd see you out the door, I'd hug and kiss you one more time and call you back for more. If I knew it was the last time I'd get to share your day, I'd know that I'd make certain it didn't slip away. We assume we'll have tomorrow to correct an oversight. We assume we'll always have another chance to make everything right. There'll always be another day to say I love you. There always will be another chance to ask, what can I do? But the reality is, we never know when our last chance will come. We all know that song. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. And we nod in agreement, and yet we find it so hard to love. One of the great challenges is to stay put, to stand, and to not back away. Don't give up. Hang on. Don't let go. Refuse to give in. There are things you can only learn by hanging on that you'll never learn any other way. If it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. We've been sold a lie that after we get married, we're just going to ride off into the sunset and we'll live happily ever after. And then we're, we're surprised when we discover that the other person we married is our opposite in every single DNA cell of our body. And we end up feeling stuck, trapped. We know we made a vow. We stood before our parents and our friends and before God, we said, till death do us part. And so when we go through a prolonged, tough season, we try to remind ourselves Divorce is not an option. Murder, maybe, but divorce is not an option. And we find out that making a commitment to stand in love forces us to grow up. Grow up! What a concept. Somehow we've got to figure out how to stop saying I, me, and mine we need to learn to start saying we, ours, and us. And some of you here might be ready to give up. God may have brought you here today to hear me say, keep on. Don't let go. Don't give up. Be stubborn about it. Hang in there. Stand. Stand in love. Learning to love and learning to live a life of love and learning to stand in love is why God put you on this planet. And our high-stake relationships are God's pathway for you to grow your deeper, your roots down deeper into God's great love and for growing you up into another level of maturity. I'm going to close with the following observation. In the context of encouraging us to Live a life of love. Ephesians talks about the Holy Spirit. Paul urges us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And I think the reason why Paul brings the Holy Spirit into this discussion about living a life of love, let's be honest, I think it's because 
the Christian life is impossible. And what can be even more frustrating is to learn that God didn't design the Christian life to be possible. He designed it to be impossible so that the only way we can live the Christian life is by allowing the Holy Spirit to live His life in and through us. So essentially Paul is saying the only way to live the Christian life is by allowing Christ to live His life in and through you. You can't do it in your own strength. That's why you need to drive your roots deep down into Him and allow Him to live His life in and through you and allow His love to flow through you. In Ephesians, Paul says, good luck showing up consistently and powerfully when you don't know who you are. Good luck showing up powerfully when who you are isn't rooted in love. Good luck showing up and optimizing God's power when who you are isn't loving, isn't living a life of love. And good luck living a life of love if the Holy Spirit isn't living His life in and through you. Paul says we need God's power to live this way. Therefore, Paul says, don't squander God's power. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. To love less powerfully than God's design is to squander the gift of God's power. So figure out what activities, practices, and relationships need to be a part of your life so that every 24 hours you live in vital union with Jesus Christ, no matter what anyone else around you is doing. And then in every area of your life, show up. Love powerfully in the strength of His mighty power. Not many live this way. But you could. But you could. As I close in prayer, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and lead us in another final song. Father, out of your glorious, glorious, rich love, strengthen your people, please. Fill their souls with the power of the Holy Spirit so that through faith, Christ might reside in their hearts. And may your great love be the rich soil where their lives take root. May it be the bedrock where their lives are founded. And I pray they will experience how infinitely long, wide, high, and deep your great love is for them. And may your love flood their entire being into all areas of their life, especially into their high-stake relationships. And now to the God who can do so many awe-inspiring things, immeasurable things, things greater than we could ever ask or imagine through the power of God's love at work in us, to Him be all glory in the church and in Jesus from this generation to the next forever and ever. Amen.